Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16 and we'll be attempting to answer this very, very important question of what is the Christian's purpose in the world? If you have put your faith and your belief and your trust in Jesus Christ alone and not in your good works to get you to heaven, if the attitudes, these be attitudes that we've looked at at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 are in you, remember things like humility, if you've repented of your sin and turned to Christ, if you have have uh, come to Christ in meekness, and you are thirsting and hungering for Christ's righteousness, which is your only hope, then the Bible says you are a believer. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you did nothing to earn it, by the way. But with that, that wonderful privilege comes, well, some responsibility. God has called us He's given us a function in this life. And in these four verses that we're going to look at today, in Matthew 5, Christ summarizes the purpose of Christians in this world. We have a function. We have a purpose. And reduced to one word, that function is influence. Your reason for breathing, for being here, for eating, for sleeping, for everything you do in life is to have an influence. Whoever lives according to the Beatitudes is going to function in the world as salt and light. And if you don't understand what that means, hang with me today. I'll explain that in a moment. But the function is to be salt and light. Why? Because Christ's character affects other people for better or for worse. Just as His Word is not going to return empty, neither will the Christian exist in this life and and have no influence one way or the other. It's either going to be for better or for worse. As John Donne reminds us, no man is an island. You heard that before? No person, in other words, is an island. You don't exist by yourself. (laughs) You have an influence one way or another. Every one of you do. No matter how how much of a hermit you might think you are, you have an influence. Now here is a mandate for Christians to influence the world. And let's read our passage together. Matthew 5, verse 13. These are the words of the living God. And he says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That ends our passage for today. So here is a mandate from Jesus Christ Himself to every Christian to influence the world. The Beatitudes are not to be lived in isolation. Those monks in the however long ago that started monasticism, whenever that started, they they got it wrong, okay? God didn't call us to, to go and live in isolation as some kind of a monk or a nun. Jesus, in fact, said, be in the world, just don't let the world be in you. So we're not to live in isolation or only among fellow believers. God doesn't call us to to have some cloister or some, you know, to set ourselves off in, in some walled city where, where, where we got our little clique going. We are to go everywhere in this world. God's only witnesses, by the way, are His children. Uh, maybe you've heard it before, said before that you, you might be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Think about that. If you're the only Bible that someone ever reads... Is that an accurate representation of God or a false one? What kind of a God are they going to know when they read you? 
Well, the figures of salt and light here emphasize different characteristics of influence. They're not exactly the same thing, of course, but their basic purpose is the same. God is calling us to have an influence in our world. Well, that that leads me to our first question we need to look at today, and it's this. Why does the world need salt and light? Jesus says, we are salt and light, but that, that begs the question then, why does the world need salt and light? By the way, don't think literally here. Okay, These are figurative terms. Jesus is using figurative language to portray literal truth. And the answer is this. The world needs salt because it's corrupt. The world is corrupt. Now, I'll prove that in a moment from Scripture. But the world also needs light because it's dark. Isn't that obvious? <laughs> the biblical worldview is that the world is corrupt. It's decayed. It's dark, and by the way, it's getting darker, not lighter. Humanism teaches that there's a, some kind of a spark of divinity within each one of us, that, that you know mankind's basically good and we're getting better. Well, hello, do you know your history? <laughs> People who believe that just need to read history then, don't they? I mean, look at the world wars and everything else that's taking place. The world's not getting better. In fact, Timothy tells us it's going to get worse before the end. And speaking of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.13 says this, that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The world cannot do anything but get worse, in fact. God says it's going to be that. And so because it has no inherent goodness to actually build on, no inherent spiritual or moral life is within anyone. So it has nothing to grow on. So what happens is that year after year, the system of evil that we live in is actually accumulating darkness. It's getting worse, in other words. It was not many generations after the fall of Genesis chapter 3 that the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it wasn't long after Genesis 3 that God brought a judgment called the flood and destroyed everyone except for eight people. And so because wickedness was so great, the Bible says that God destroyed every single person except eight people, And by the way, those eight people were far from perfect themselves. God didn't save them because they were perfect. But that was was God's plan. And then we have a few generations after Noah and his his family come off the ark. It wasn't long after that that we, we come to the chapter in the Bible that talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had become so rotten that God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Another day of judgment is coming, by the way. Another day of judgment is coming when God is going to, again, He's going to rain fire on this earth. But that destruction is going to be a holocaust far greater than Sodom and Gomorrah ever was. You can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 3 here, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Bible makes it quite clear that mankind is infected with a deadly virus far deadly than HIV or any other cancer virus or any, anything else you can think of. It's called sin. And by the way, sin, this deadly virus of sin, has no cure. There's no chemotherapy or radiation or anything else that, that you can do for sin. There's no cure apart from God, that is. Unfortunately, most people don't want their sin cured. They love their disease and they wallow in it. They love their corruption and they hate God's righteousness. In fact, Jesus even talked about it in John chapter 3. He says this, 
and this is the judgment. It's on the screen here, by the way. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? What did Jesus say? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. By the way, let's just stop there for a moment. Does that explain why this hall is not filled? <laughs> That's part of the reason why this hall is not filled. We, we could get a lot more people in here, couldn't we? People don't like their sin exposed. It's uncomfortable. Uh, it's hard for me to preach. I'm preaching to myself, by the way, every time I'm up here. Okay? I'm, I'm beating myself up far worse than, than you ever get it. Okay? My, my, my t- before I even get up in the pulpit, I can guarantee my, my toes are flat. Because I've been stepping on my own toes all week long. In fact, for years, in fact, I've been doing it. So, God says, we, we, we don't like our deeds to be exposed. We don't like the light. We love the darkness because we love our sin. But Jesus goes on to say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Well, some scientists have proposed that by surgery or some kind of careful uh, electronic stimulation of the brain that someone's bad impulses can actually be you know done away with you totally eradicated really I mean, people have tried that you know stick electrodes up to your to your body and and uh, you know if someone's an alcoholic you know we'll, we'll just we'll just put you got to put the the electrode in the right spot and, and and he can no longer be an alcoholic or if someone's got a problem with pornography, well, we just you need to get to the right part of the brain, and we'll we'll electrocute the guy, and he'll, he'll no longer want to look at pornography. Really? <laughs> People actually think that, and they've tried that sort of thing. Others propose that the uh, the ideal person will be developed by genetic engineering. You know, we'll just mess around with people's DNA and genes and. You know, we'll, we'll match this guy up with this woman and, and we'll just try to finagle things around and we'll try to make the perfect person. Well, I got a question for you. What does God think about that? What does God think about that? Well, God tells us in the Bible that every part of man is corrupt. He has no inherent natural good traits that can be isolated from the bad. Nobody can take, you know, can look at a list of genes and say, you know, we'll, we'll pick out that one. That's a bad one, and leave the rest. You can't do that. In fact, our total nature is depraved. The Bible says. And to to show you just how clear this is, let me give you a good example. In fact, David himself, when he was writing in the Psalms, he knew that he was sinful from the moment of his conception. When his mother and father, you know, they got together and did their thing. Here's what, here's what David said in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. How, how, how much more clear can it be? There's no good part in us. You can't make anything better apart from God. So our corrupt part can, uh, can't be isolated. Pretty clear, isn't it? In iniquity I was brought forth. In sin did my mother conceive me. So that little bundle of joy, those of you who had children, little bundle of joy that comes forth from, from, uh, from the womb, is born a sinner. It lives in the state of sin. <laughs> it's not a sinner because it sinned. You realize that? It's already a sinner, even before it commits the first sin, the Bible says. Jeremiah 17, 7 talks about our heart. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So far we've seen the world needs salt and light because it's corrupt and it's dark. But what is God's plan? God has a plan, and, and what is that plan? Well, let's, let's look at God's plan. And the answer to that is found here in Matthew 5. And God's plan is for you, if you're a believer, to influence the world. That's his plan. As disciples of Christ, we're called to minister to the world. 
We're to be in the world, not of it though. We are to have an influence. We're to be separated from the world's standards, its ways, from its philosophies. Uh, Romans 12, 2 says, don't, don't let the world press you into its mold. You ought to be taking the world and pressing it into Christ's mold. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But sadly, the church today is often more influenced by the world than the world is actually influenced by the church. shouldn't be that way. We kind of need to go back to the first century. First century church was turning the world right side up. Today we've just kind of given up and joined the world and you know, kind of taken the philosophy. Too many churches have taken the philosophy that, hey, you, if you can't beat them, just join them. <laughs> That's wrong. Well, in both verse 13 and 14, we, we find some interesting words here we need to look at. First of all, you'll notice in verse 13 and 14, there's a pronoun. Pronouns modify nouns. You see the pronoun you. That's an emphatic you, which, which just means this. The, the idea is that you are the only salt of the earth. You are the only light of the world. There is no other. In other words, the world's corruption is not going to be retarded, And its darkness is not going to be illumined unless God's people are the salt and the light. You understand what I'm saying there? This is God's plan, okay? You are God's plan. He doesn't have a plan B. The you in both verses, by the way, not only is it emphatic saying you are the only light and salt, but it's also plural. In other words, it's not... uh, what, it, what it means is it, it's talking about all of us. Okay? And so you ask, well, what is that actually telling you? It's, the plural pronoun tells us it's the whole body of Christ. It is the church that's actually called to be salt and light. The church. Why? Well, if you look at this picture of salt here, th- think of it this way. Okay, Think of the analogy using the salt and light that Jesus gave. A, a grain of salt... Just one grain of salt by itself doesn't have much of an influence, does it? Right? Are you with me, class? One grain of salt by itself, you just put it out there all by itself, doesn't make much of an impact or an influence. But you put it all together, it it makes a huge influence, right? That's the idea. Each grain of salt, of course, has a limited amount of influence. But you put all of us together, we can have a big influence. And that same analogy carries over into the light. One ray of light doesn't have much of an influence. You, you put it all together and you, you, could, you can light lots of millions of rays of light can, can make darkness disappear. Can accomplish great stuff. Well, let's talk about that little word there. The word are. Because it says you are. You are. It says it twice. Verse 13 and 14. Are actually stresses being rather than doing. Too often we think of the Christian life as, as a bunch of list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's, it's what you do. But God says, no, in this case, it's not what you do. You don't, you don't do salt and light. You are salt and light. Does that make sense? So Jesus is really stating a fact here. He's not giving you a command. He's not telling you to be salt and light. Jesus is saying, this is what you already are. If the Beatitudes are in you, if you have humbled yourself, you've repented of your sin, you've come in meekness, you're hungering for righteousness, then you are salt and light. Salt and light represent what Christians are. So the only question then is whether or not we're tasteful salt if we're an effective light that's the issue are you effective are you having an influence so the very fact that we belong to jesus christ makes us his salt and light if you belong to christ if you've put your faith in christ alone you are salt and light and by the way it's important to note that christ is the source okay you're not the source christ is the source of that salt and light. So in order for you to have an influence, you need to be connected. John said, John put it this way, unless you're abiding in the vine who is Jesus, 
you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to do anything. You, you can't produce any fruit. Jesus said, without him, you can do nothing. And in, in fact, in John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus said this, uh, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, some of you at this point might say, well, didn't Christ leave the world? <laughs> yeah, it, it, yes, in a way he did. That's, that's true. Jesus did ascend to his Father in heaven. He has left this world. His light comes to the world through those whom he has enlightened. So Christ's light comes to the world through those who are his light, the believers. So if you're a believer, you shine forth the reflected light of Christ. Think of it this way. Think of yourself as a mirror. A mirror is not a light source, is it? A mirror has no, no power shining from it. A mirror is only reflecting light. So if you're a Christian, think of yourself as a mirror. Think of Christ as the light. And the light is bouncing off you and so other people can see the true source of light. And we see this idea in Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 5, verse 8, it says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walking. The idea they're walking. Live it out, in other words. Live what you profess to be. Well, how are we to influence the world, you might ask? How, how am I to influence the world? Well, one of the ways you do that is by being salt. Jesus says, be salt. You, you are salt, but make that salt effective, meaningful. Salt has always been valuable in human society. As I was studying about this, I learned some things about salt. For example, it used to be even more valuable in the past than it is today. Salt doesn't really cost a lot of money today, does it? It's fairly cheap. You go to the grocery store, you, you can buy a big bag for just a couple dollars. And so, But during the period of the ancient Greek history, it was actually called theon. Kind of sounds very similar to theos. We get our Greek word God, theos, theon, very similar. It's, it, it means divine. The Greeks called salt divine. That's how important it was to them. The Romans held that except for the sun, nothing was more valuable than salt. Nothing was more valuable than salt except the sun. Often Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was from that very practice, the expression, not worth his salt, originated. You heard that phrase? That person is not worth his salt. You wonder where that comes from? It comes from when they actually paid Roman soldiers in salt. In numerous ways, Jesus' hearers, whether they were Greek, Roman, or Jewish, would have understood what Jesus was saying when he said, you are the salt of the earth. It represents a valuable commodity. Very valuable. They knew that he was saying, if, if I'm to be a follower of this Jesus, well, that means something very important. That means that I have an extremely valuable, important function in this world. You say, why? Because salt always stood for that which was of high value and importance. Jesus is saying, you have high value and importance. You are of high value. Now, there's all sorts of ideas out there. If you, again, if you read commentaries on this passage, if you read five commentaries like I did, you, you can get five different opinions. All right? um, let me just give you some of the things that I found. Uh, these, are, these are ideas of what salt is and what it actually does. And as people were th others, great minds were thinking about this, uh, they, they were trying to figure out, okay, if this is what salt is, well, then what does this mean for me as a Christian? Well, let's talk about a few of these. For example, number one, salt is often the color white. And often in the Bible, that represents purity. And, and so people take that analogy and they, they run with that, sometimes too far with that. And Christians are to be pure because the world is not. The world's dark. Right? It's, it's not pure. It's not clean. And, and, and to be God, uh, 
we're, in other words, we're to be God's means of helping to purify the rest of the world. That's what some people say. And all of that is true. But I don't know if we can prove it from this passage, okay? Uh, we, we are to be pure, that's true. And, and we are to have an influence in the world in that way. But it does not seem to be the point here. Because, think about it, saltiness... Uh, Yes, we are to be salt. But, but the color of the salt is not the main point of this passage. The main point of the passage is, is the taste of the salt. What, what does that actually accomplish? We'll think about that in a moment. But number two, salt adds flavor. In other words, Christians are to add flavor to the world, some commentators say. Again, in some senses, that principle is true. The problem with this view is that from the very earliest days of the church, the world has considered Christianity to be flavorless. They don't don't like Christians. They don't like the flavor of Christianity, which is why they persecuted Christians. Well, another idea is that salt stings when placed in a wound. You ever put salt in a wound? You ever had a cut and jump in the ocean? Ah! That's not nice, is it? (laughs) Well, and so they say Christians are to sting the world, to prick its conscience, make it uncomfortable in the presence of the gospel. Well, that analogy, that analogy, I should say, has some merit to it. But again, I don't know if that's the main point. Another idea is that salt creates thirst. You ever, you ever taken salt? Eat a, eat a whole bag of salt and vinegar chips which is a wonderful thing to do. It's just not good for your health. Um, <clears throat> but when you're done, uh, you, 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 really, you really need something to drink, don't you? It makes you thirsty. All that salt makes you thirsty. Again, this analogy has some merits. And God intends for His people to so live and testify before the world that others are going to be made more aware of their spiritual dehydration. Well, all of these analogies, again, have some, some validity to them. Christians are to be pure. We are to add a certain attractiveness to the gospel. Uh, we should be true to God's word. We, and, and in a sense, sometimes we, we need to sting people with the truth. Uh, our living should create a thirst for God and those who don't actually know God. So there is some element of truth to that. But I believe the primary characteristic that Jesus emphasizes here is that of preservation. Preservation. Christians are a preserving influence in the world. They retard moral and spiritual spoilage. And so when the church is actually taken out of the world, if you believe like I do in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, when Christians will be taken out of this world before the seven years of, of God's judgment on this earth, we're going to see a time when, this, when those who are the salt and light will be taken out of this world. And then Satan's wicked power will be unleashed in a, in a way we've never really seen before. Evil will go wild. The demons will be almost unbridled in this world. Imagine that. Well, just read the book of Revelation. The whole middle part of Revelation shows of God's judgments. And so once God's people are removed, it's only going to take seven years there for the world to descend to the very pits of hellishness. It's not going to be a a nice place to live. But until that day, Christians can have a powerful influence. You can have an influence. We, as God's people, can have an influence. Let me give you an example of this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England in the 1900s, wrote this. He says, quote, Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals have become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, 
and the great acts of parliament which were passed in that last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land, end quote. Kind of sad to think about the state of England now today, isn't it? Sad to think about the state of, of our country, New Zealand today, isn't it? We don't have many Christians to start with, and those Christians we do have don't have much of an influence too often. So God says we're to have an influence by being salt, but He also says we're to have an influence by being light. Salt preserves a society. It preserves the world for, from corruption. But what, is, what does light do? Well, Jesus calls us here to be light. So let's think about this. There is a difference between salt and light. And uh, here, here's some things that I've found as we compare light and salt together. For example, salt, it's hidden. It works secretly. It works from within. It has an indirect influence. It works through our living. It's largely negative and it retards corruption. On the other hand, uh, light is its obvious, isn't it? It works openly. It works from without. It has direct influence. It works primarily through what we teach and preach. It's more positive and it helps produce righteousness. John talked about this in 1 John 1. Look, look what John says here. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of, his, of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So we, we see that light is not given some uh, it's not given given simply for us to just have. Light is not something that you're to just kind of hoard to yourself, but it's something that we're to live by. In fact, we see this idea throughout Scripture. Let me give you an example. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word, the Bible, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's light is to walk by. It's to live by. Think of it as your, your, your light. So you have, you're not walking around in darkness. You have a, a standard to live by, if you will. You have something you know is pleasing to God and things that you know are displeasing to Him. Well, what are we talking about? Well, in the fullest sense here, God's light is the full revelation of His Word. The Bible is God's light. And and by word, I just mean it's in two senses. It's the, uh, the written word of the Scripture, and it's also the living word, according to John 1, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible, think of it also as the light. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, here's, Christ said this, he, Christ came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Christ is the light of the world. He came to, to bring this light to, to those of us who are sitting around in the darkness. That's why He came. So Christ is the true light. What does that make us? It makes us mirrors of that true light. We are to reflect the true light to the world around us. And if you do that, then you're having an influence. So think of it this way. Think of like Jesus Christ as the Son, but of course He's far greater, more significant. And think of yourself as the moon. Right? You, you know the moon doesn't actually have a source of light. I hope you know that. So when you look up at the moon at nighttime, and you're, you're thinking, particularly when there's a full moon, and, 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 and you've got this light streaming in through your bedroom window, thinking, wow, it's bright out there. The, the moon is really bright. Not, not really, the sun is bright. The sun is what's bright. The moon's just reflecting the sun's light to us. And that's the way we are to be as Christians. And look what 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says here. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Let me ask you a question. Do you understand how God sheds His light on the world? Do you, do you really understand that? And the answer is, through those who have received His light through Jesus Christ. That's what it says. Do you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Then you are light. Now, how effective you are is another issue we'll get to in a moment. But you are light. You're, you're reflecting Jesus. I hope it's an accurate reflection. I hope it's a, a bright reflection. Philippians 2, verse 15 says this, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. May God help us to be bright lights. Well, by its nature and by definition, light must be visible in order to illuminate. Right? That's pretty obvious. <laughs> if, if, the, if, it's, if it's not direct, you know, it's, it's not going to do its thing. If it's not bouncing off something like the moon or a mirror, it's, it's not going to illuminate. Therefore, Christians must be more than some just direct influence. We must also be or say indirect, we need to be direct. We need to be noticeable to the world around us. If you look at our passage here in Matthew 5, it says this, that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. God wants us to be like a city that's on a hill. And the light coming out of that city can be seen from kilometers and miles around. Well, what does that mean in practical terms? It means that you and I shouldn't be secret agent Christians. Don't be a secret agent Christian. Let the world know you're a Christian. Let it be obvious. Have an influence. Don't just hide out in the community and and hope no one notices. Lights are to illuminate. Lights aren't to be hidden. They're to be displayed. You're not to cover them up. As it says here, don't put it under a bushel. Don't put something on top of it. Try to hide it. Put it on a lampstand where everyone can see it. There's a danger we need to talk about here. You say, what is the danger? The danger is failure. The danger is failure. God says, you are salt and light if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And the first danger we need to, to address is that salt is in danger of becoming useless. Salt's in danger of becoming useless. If you look at verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Let's talk about salt again for a few minutes here, okay? Much of the salt in Palestine uh, was contaminated and is contaminated by gypsum and other minerals that uh, would actually make the taste uh, very undesirable. And, uh, and for, for most, it just makes it repulsive. You just don't even want to use the stuff. And, and so when a batch of contaminated salt would actually make its way into a household, and, and when they actually discovered it, what they do is they throw it out in the streets a lot of times. Just throw it out in the street. People would trample on it. People would be careful not to throw it on uh, a garden, of course. You don't want to throw it out with your vegetables or whatever because the salt could actually kill the vegetables. It would kill whatever was planted there. Instead, as I said, as it, as it says here, they would throw it in a path or throw it in a road or wherever where it would be gradually ground into the dirt to eventually disappear. There's a sense in which salt cannot really become unsalty. You understand that? It doesn't lose its taste, but it can be contaminated to such a point where it's, it's actually worthless. Contamination can cause it to lose its value. You, you wouldn't want to use salt that had uh, uh, gypsum or other undesirable minerals in, in, in it. Its saltiness can no longer actually function as God designed it to function. You wouldn't want to pour gypsum and minerals on your, your food, would you? Of course not. That's disgusting. Nobody wanted to do that, so they would throw it out. 
Now, please listen carefully, because some people think as they, they look at this passage that Jesus is speaking about losing your salvation. Is that what this passage is talking about? Is Jesus saying, you know, you become a Christian and then you, you lose your taste and, and God throws you out of heaven? Is, is that the idea here? No, that's not what it's talking about. Jesus is not speaking about losing your salvation. God doesn't allow any of his children be, to be taken from him. The Bible makes that quite clear. So when, when you come to a passage of Scripture that you, you may not fully understand, use the clearer passage of Scripture to interpret the less clear. For example, look at John 10 here it's on the screen. Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, when you're in God's hand, when you're one of his sheep, one of his children, you're always one of his sheep. <laughs> you're always one of his children. And when you're in his hand, nothing can take you out. That's what God said. And so based on that verse and, and many others we could look at, it's obvious, isn't it, that Christians cannot lose their salvation. So that's, that can't be the point of the passage. Salt cannot lose its inherent saltiness. Salt is, always has a taste, but sadly it can be corrupted and in the process become useless. So there's a warning here for us. There is a warning. Listen, my friend. Christians can lose their value and their effectiveness when, when sin in this world enters into our lives and into our churches and contaminates us. That's why Jesus said, do, do not be conformed to this world. The church is to conform the world to Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not to, to, to go around in this world and start looking like the world and talking like the world and thinking like the world. So the warning is, don't become tasteless. And if you do, you're, you're going to become disqualified. That's the idea. It doesn't, it's not talking about losing your salvation. The idea is you become disqualified, and, and you're basically worthless to God. You have no influence on His world. Well, there's a second danger we need to address, and it's this, that light is in danger of becoming useless as well. Salt's in danger of becoming useless but light can become useless as well. Just like salt, it, it, it's not going to lose its essential nature. A hidden light is still a light, isn't it? <laughs> okay. You know, for example, if you've got a closet door open, you turn the light on in that closet, say one of those closets over there, and, and you see the light shining out of the closet, and you shut the door, and you say, well, I can't see the light. But that doesn't mean the light isn't shining, right? The light could still be on. But you may not see it. And, and therefore it's become useless, right? It's not lighting up the room. But the light's still on. A hidden light is still light. It just became useless. And so that's why people are not to hide it under a basket, as it says here. Instead, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, in verse 14. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But instead, Jesus said, put it on a lampstand so it can give its light to all who are in the house. That's having an influence. That's having an influence. By the way, hidden light helps nobody, does it? A hidden light does no good. It's, it's not even helping the person who actually hid the light does no good at all. It's useless. So you say, okay, I'm supposed to have an influence. God calls, he, he said, sorry, he, he says I am salt and light. The issue is, am I having an influence in this world? But God tells us we have a purpose. And it's, it's not all about us. <laughs> okay, your purpose, your reason for living is not all about you. In fact, if you look at verse 16, when he says, you are light and you are salt, here's the purpose. Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men so that everybody's going to come up to you and, and, and do this, right? 
oh, good boy, good boy, and pat you on the back and say, oh, man, oh, oh, man, that was a, you did such a good job. Pat you on the back and say all wonderful things about you and talk about your fame and write books about you. Is that what it's all, is that what verse 16 says? No, it doesn't say that at all, does it? It says, let your light so shine not so people will pat you on the back and write books about you and, and, and put you all over the internet and those sort of things. No, no, that's not what it's about. Let your light so shine before men that they, the world, may see your good works and glorify, not you, but your Father in heaven. That's what it's all about. It's all about glorifying our Father in heaven. Now, let me just point out something here in verse 16. You'll see the word good. You see the word good, that they may see your good works. The word good there, Jesus used it here. It's not so much emphasizing quality. All right, Don't think of quality as in that kind of a good work. But the idea here is in regards to, the, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not so much the quality, but the attractiveness, the the beautiful appearance. In other words, what I'm saying is that people should see the beauty of Jesus Christ. They should say, wow, that person's God is beautiful. That person's God is awesome. I want to know that kind of a God. And so to see good works by us is to see Christ in us. They're to see an accurate representation of Christ And that's why Christ commands us here to let our light shine. By the way, that's not an option. That is not an option. (laughs) You can't say, well, you know, I just want to be a secret agent Christian. No, you can't. God says, let it shine as many people as possible. Let it shine. Light is not something that we create, not something we make up, but it's something that we actually are allowing God to do through us. You can do nothing without Christ. So it's God's light. So our choice is this. Here's the choice. Let it shine or hide it. You are light, Jesus said. You are light. You only have two options. You're going to let it shine or you're going to hide it. That's your choice. Just two choices. So the purpose of letting our light shine then, which I hope you will choose that option... And revealing our good works here is not to bring attention to ourselves, but it's to bring attention to God. Our intent should be that others may see God in order that they will glorify Him. They'll see God, they'll know Him, and they'll see Him as big and as, as, as great as He really is. So our good works are to magnify God, isn't it? What, what does a magnifying glass do? Okay, magnifying glass helps us to see stuff, right? Sadly, we, we, we tend to think of God as too small. Too many people think of God as He's too small or non-existent. You are to help people see God, an accurate representation of Him. So glorifying God is, is the supreme calling of your life. You see that? The supreme calling of your life is not to make money. The supreme calling of your life is not to have, you know, a good life. It's not to be happy. It's not to be healthy, wealthy, wise, or, or anything, anything else you can think of other than this answer. That is the supreme calling of your life. And if you're not doing that, then you've, you've missed your calling. Get on the boat. So everything we do is to cause others to praise God, to worship God who, of course, is the source of everything that's good. Well, what about those people who cause people to be attracted to them rather than to God? Because, right, the the, the supreme calling is to glorify God, to bring attention to God, then I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, what about that person? I mean, that person's bringing all kinds of attention to themselves. If you think of that person who claims to be a Christian, right, and, and, and you look at that person, and that person's not drawing you to God at all. Well, what about them? 
And the answer is, if we cause people to be attracted to us rather than God, well, then we can be sure that what they see is not God's light then. They're not seeing God. And, and that's sad. Because God is our hope. God is, is, is He's the greatest. He's the most beautiful. He's the best. He's the wisest. He is the greatest treasure. He's what we need to know and love and worship. I want to end by telling you about a person that, that's not very familiar to a lot of people. If you ever get to read about Robert Murray McShane, I, I really encourage you to do so. It was said of Robert Murray McShane, by the way, who was a, a godly Scottish minister, and uh, he was a minister or a pastor during the 1800s. It was said of him that his face, even his very countenance, his face carried a, 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 an expression, a hollow expression that people would actually fall on their knees when they looked at him, when they heard him preach. And people would just, just by looking at him, his expressions on his face and, and hearing what he had to say sometimes would accept Christ as Savior just from looking at it. That's amazing. I've never had that happen. <laughs> Others were so attracted by the beauty and the holiness of his life, his, his walk with God that they found Jesus to be irresistible. Wow. That's one of the reasons it's so valuable to read biographies and autobiographies. They're encouraging. They're exhorting. They're edifying. They build you up. They, 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 they're very helpful. Let me encourage you to read about Robert Murray McShane. His life, his salt, and his light is what God wants us to be. You are salt and light. God calls you to have an influence. Please, my friend, don't hide it. Don't corrupt it. Don't make it useless. Let it shine. Have an influence. Have an impact in this world. Don't let the world impact you, but you impact the world around you. You're going to have an influence. No man is an island. My friend, what, what kind of an influence are you having? Okay. If you're a Christian, you're going to have an influence. My friend, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to have an influence. Not, a, not any kind of good influence anyway. So my friend, if you're not a believer, if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ alone, instead of your good works, then you're not on your way to heaven. Your sins have not been paid for. The penalty has not been taken care of. You stand under God's wrath. You need Jesus. And you will never have an influence for good in this world until you come to Christ. So my friend, if you want to have a good influence, come to Christ so that you can be salt and light.